Um, let's pray before we come to God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we've just heard how Jesus called the crowd and said, listen and understand. And we pray now that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to listen and to understand. And we do pray that you would change us from within and give us hearts of faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we heard earlier on, next Saturday, Amanda Wallace and uh, Luke will be getting married in this church. We know already pretty much what that service will be like. Uh, We know the groom will be here on time. Uh, We know the bride will walk down the aisle uh, with her father. She'll probably be a little bit late. A few weeks' time, there'll be a remembrance service and the war memorial. Again, we know what will happen. The bugle will play the last post. You'll hear these these words which are are said here and up and down the country at the going down of the sun and in the morning we will remember them. And before we know it, it'll be Christmas and we'll be singing traditional Christmas carols and to the sound of the Salvation Army Band and I don't need to go into the rest of the, the traditions that go on around this time of year. But weddings, Remembrance Day, Christmas, all these occasions are full of traditions Are they good traditions? Yeah, there is something about tradition that we find comforting. There are familiar patterns of uh, doing things that are handed down the generations um, to the extent they become almost second nature to us. Often we don't even know where they came from originally. Traditions can be positive. They can be helpful. They give structure to our lives. We don't want to be continually reinventing the, the wheel We can benefit from the past and what those who've gone before us have tried out successfully. And they also give us a certain sense of belonging to a culture. Wherever you may live in the world, British traditions are carried on amongst expat communities. The only time I ever celebrated the Queen's birthday was when we were in Brazil. Traditions can be helpful in church. The style and structure of our church services and ministries has been thought through by those who've gone before, and there's there's meaning and there's purpose to what we do. But, and I know you were waiting for me to get to this point, traditions can also be dangerous. They can be dangerous when people hold more strongly to tradition than the word of God. They can be dangerous when people are so resistant to a change in tradition that it affects their faith. That was the situation with the Pharisees that we will see in this passage this morning. And just by way of background, after the exile of the Jews in Babylon, the Jewish rabbis began to make rules and regulations governing the daily life of the people. They had the Jewish law in the the Old Testament. But um, the big question was, how do you apply it to the individual situations of daily life? And so over the years, uh, a body of rules had been developed that had been passed down the generations by word of mouth. It was only later, in about 200 AD, that um, these were compiled in writing in the Mishnah. Well, as we will see in this passage, the desire of the Pharisees to keep rigidly to the rules and traditions had become more important than the actual law of God on which they were based. 
Many years later, the same happened in the, the Christian church. Church rules and traditions took precedence over God's word. And it was that which prompted the start of the Reformation. Luther questioning the, the practices and traditions of the church. And when he appeared before the, uh, the, the, the assembly of Worms, he said, unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So help me God. Well, as we study this passage this morning, it's easy to step back and be, be hard on the Pharisees. But of course, there is something of the Pharisee in each one of us. So as we study this passage this morning, let's not exempt ourselves from their mistakes. But let's see what we have to learn from this episode. And let's rejoice in a faith which is free, free from human tradition and outward appearance, but trusts in the word of God and his transforming work in our hearts. The title of this series um, is Living by Faith. And there are two key lessons for us to take away from it this morning. The first of those is this. Living by faith means being obedient to God's word rather than human tradition. So turn with me, if you would, to this passage which David read for us. And as we look back to chapter 14, uh, where we finished last week, the episode of Jesus walking on the water, we're told in verse 34... That when they had crossed over the Lake of Galilee, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. Peter brought all, people brought all who were ill to him and begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Jesus' reputation is becoming more and more widespread to the extent that some Pharisees and teachers of the law that's the legal experts who interpret the Jewish law they come all the way from the city of Jerusalem to visit Jesus it was him they'd come to see and they had a specific purpose in mind and it wasn't to ask him to heal them or to explain the gospel to them they come straight out with it have a look at verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now that's a long way to go to tell someone their hands are a little bit grubby, isn't it? But there's something more important at stake to them here. It's the traditions that are at stake. It's also not Jesus' disciples they're having a go at. It's, it's Jesus himself. Jesus is their teacher. And so they're saying to him, why are you teaching your disciples to break the tradition of the elders? And the example they come out with is they don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, you might think it's not very hygienic eating without washing your hands. Um, but this has got nothing to do with hygiene. If it did, they would probably follow the latest NHS advice which is to wash your hands for as long as it takes to sing happy birthday, which is apparently 20 seconds. Now, this is about religious purity. Under the Jewish law, when someone came into contact with someone or something deemed unclean, 
there needed to be a ritual cleansing. And the Pharisees developed a whole load of detailed rules about hand-washing. So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, very wisely, he doesn't get into a dispute about whether or not it's all right to wash your hands. Um, wouldn't really go anywhere. Now, he gets the heart of the problem. The thing that is wrong with the Pharisees. Underneath their outward appearance of obedience, there was an ungodly attitude. And so he, he asks them a reply. He says, have a look. In verse 3, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? What Jesus is saying is that the most important thing is not human tradition. It is the command of God. And Jesus gives an example himself. He says, for God said in verse 4, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honour their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Well, what on earth is all that about, you might be thinking. The command of God is to honour your father or mother. That's in the Ten Commandments. We, we know that, I'm sure. But what has happened is that the Jews were encouraged to make pledges of future offerings to God. And that's what is referred to here as those things devoted to God. Uh, Having made that pledge, they could still use them for for their own uh, purposes, but they couldn't give them to others, including their, their parents, even if they were old and in need of them. So what Jesus was pointing out here was that in devising this tradition, they were actually breaking the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. And the result of that is, and here comes the stinging rebuke, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Your tradition has become more important than the word of God. And he goes on to say now, with pretty strong language, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, Their teachings are merely human rules. Now, that is pretty strong language. But it shows just how serious this was in Jesus' view. And when we think of hypocrisy, we think of sometimes just a difference between what people say and what people do. And that is true to a certain extent. But it goes deeper than that. Because you can say and do the right thing, but it's more about a difference between what you are saying and doing, the image you are presenting from your external actions, and what is going on inside, what is in the heart. The impression the Pharisees were trying to give was that they were godly people. But they were more interested in impressing people with their their external behavior than doing what God wanted them to do. They were also more interested in ensuring that the Jewish people complied with these human traditions than having a genuine love for God and a trust in him. It was like they were exerting power and control over people. And that's why they made this long journey to Jesus to bring him into line. He'd stepped out of line. And the thing about human rules and traditions, and this really gets to the crux of it, is that it is possible to keep them. It's therefore possible to think we're leading a good life. 
that God is actually very pleased with us. But if that's the case, why did Jesus need to die for us? Because the truth of the matter is that in our hearts, we are all sinful. Our thoughts are not all pure. We will never be good enough, however many rules we keep. The Pharisees' biggest problem was pride. Whereas what God is most interested in is those who worship him sincerely from the heart. And to worship God from the heart, you need to know God. You need to know what pleases him. You need to know what displeases him. And the place you'll find that is in his word. That is his direct revelation to us. Once you start to replace God's word with human rules and traditions, then you put yourself in the place of God. And this is why this is such a serious thing. Jesus is incredibly compassionate and gracious with those who come to him, acknowledge their, their, their troubles and ask for his help. And we'll see an example of that next week. But he reserves his strongest condemnation for those who think they are in the right, who set themselves above God, and worst of all, they're teaching people lies. The Pharisees were meant to be leaders of God's people, but they were leading them astray. Blind guides, Jesus calls them. So how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, what is the basis on which we have been saved? It's not because we've lived a decent life. It's not because we've turned up at church every Sunday. It's not because we've helped lots of people. It's not because we've avoided doing bad things. It is, despite all the things we've done wrong, that God still loves us. And instead of punishing us, he punishes Jesus instead. And we've gratefully accepted that free gift of salvation which we didn't deserve. That is the truly good news. And every other religion in some way or another is about making yourself good enough. It's all down to you. The gospel says we will never be good enough. But we don't need to be. We just need to trust that Jesus died for us. And if you haven't accepted that that wonderful gift of salvation yet in your life, then why not do that today? Ask Jesus to come into your life. If you have, then the challenge for us is always to be aware of the temptation to demonstrate to other people that we are somehow good enough so they will be impressed with us. There's no shame in admitting your failure and asking for help, both from God and from other Christians. That's what we're here for. We're here for one another. There is shame in pretending everything's okay when it's not. Which brings us on to our second point, which is linked to the first, that living by faith means a change in our heart and not just our outward behavior. Have a look at verse 10. We're told there that Jesus called the crowd to him. This is obviously something important which he thinks they all need to hear. And he says, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Now, you can understand they might need a little bit more explanation than than that. And so it's Peter, as usual, who who, um, steps up and asks for it. But Jesus replies to them all and says, are you still so dull? 
don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Jesus is making an important statement here. He's saying that nothing outside a person could defile them. Defilement proceeds from the inside out, not the the outside in. Because defilement resides in the heart. And that went right against what the Pharisees taught, which was that evil is external. And that you become defiled by coming into contact with the wrong person, the wrong place, or the wrong thing. And so as a Jew, you would avoid contact with Gentiles, with Samaritans, with tax collectors, with sinners. And so the Pharisees criticized Jesus for being a friend of sinners. He shouldn't be having contact with them. But what Jesus is saying is you can't avoid defilement by steering clear of evil people, places, and things. The only way to deal with it is to address the issues of the heart. And that is why traditions can be so dangerous, because by focusing on the external compliance with them, it's possible to be blind to the problem of the heart. The evil thoughts that people have, the evil deeds that people do, come from the heart. Sin affects every part of us, including our thoughts. And if we're harboring wrong thoughts then sooner or later it will lead to wrong actions. We have to acknowledge that the thought is wrong to prevent it leading to a wrong action. So let's take a look at the thoughts that that Jesus mentions in this passage. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. The first one he mentions is murder. Murder is not just literally killing someone, but as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if we are feeling angry towards a brother, or sister, we're guilty. Is there someone we are harboring thoughts of anger or or bitterness towards? If so, we need to, to deal with that thought in our hearts before it leads to us doing or saying something we will regret. Jesus says, go and be reconciled to them. Adultery and sexual immorality. This week the news has been dominated by the uh, allegations of sexual abuse by the film producer Harvey uh, Weinstein. Now his problem started before he abused women. The problem in his heart was one of lust. And he convinced himself that there was was nothing wrong with that and therefore he acted on it and it appears that many women have suffered as a result. Now, many people here may struggle with lust, but do we accept that it is wrong and try and deal with it, or are we trying to justify it? Because if we don't deal with the thoughts, the danger is that it will consume us, and it may lead to adultery or sexual immorality. Theft, Jesus says here, theft is not just breaking into somebody's house and stealing their TV. Theft is about hearts of greed and envy. It's failing to find satisfaction in what God has given us. 
is failing to acknowledge that everything we have comes from God. And therefore we are to use it generously to, uh, to give back to him for his glory and not for our selfish purposes. As it says in 2 Corinthians 9, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. False testimony, slander. I'm sure we don't deliberately set out to slander others, but we can all at times be careless with our words and without realizing it, we can cause offence. But if we are the ones who've been offended, how do do we respond to that? Well, what we should do is is to go to the person who's offended us and tell us, tell them how we feel. And more often than not, it's a simple misunderstanding that can be cleared up. But it's very easy, isn't it, for an original offence to be multiplied because instead of going to them, we'd rather have a moan to others behind their backs. And deep down, we know that's wrong. But maybe we try and justify it to ourselves by saying things like, well, they wouldn't take it very well. They wouldn't listen to me anyway. It's a desire of our hearts to seek reconciliation, to help our brother or sister know their offense. Or is it just to make ourselves feel good and defend ourselves to others? All these things, Jesus says, murder, adultery, Sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander are what defile a person. But the great news of the gospel is that although all of us are guilty of all of these um, to some degree or another, Jesus has taken that guilt of sin away from us. He's washed us clean. And that includes not just our sinful actions, that includes our sinful thoughts, our sinful feelings. And he's done that on the cross. That is where he took the punishment that we deserve. And as that guilt is lifted from us and placed on him, the anger of God is taken away. And we can experience that tremendous feeling of of freedom and peace. Yesterday, a couple of us went to a conference in Aylesbury on the work uh, that different uh, Christian organizations are doing in prisons. And one of the men who was interviewed had gone into care at the age of eight, which uh, he pretty much considered prison, and um, then spent the rest of his life in and out of prison. Uh, He was 58, um, had re-offended over 20 times. But a couple of years ago, he experienced the, the love of God, and his heart was changed. And he now knows true freedom and what it is to live on the outside with the love of God. Now, of course, the work is not yet complete in any of us. It's an ongoing work of purification. But as we become Christians and as the Spirit comes to to live in us, he begins to break the hold that sin has over us. He begins to break the power of sin. Yes, we may still have sinful thoughts, but the Spirit makes us aware of them. He helps us to try not to defend them or justify them, but he gives us strength to resist them. He gives us a greater desire to live a pure life. 
As David says in Psalm 51, having been convicted of sin himself, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So let me leave you with this question as we come to to an end. Are you happy with the state of your heart? Not are you leading a reasonably decent life. Not are you doing all the things you should do as a Christian. But in your heart, do you desire God more and more? Do you want to love others more and more? If yes, then rejoice in the work that God is doing in you. Pray that he will continue it. As it says in Romans 6 here, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. If not, then come and speak to one of the pastors because we want to help you discover or rediscover that true joy and peace. We want to pray that God would retune your heart. Let's have a moment of quiet to just reflect on what we've heard and what God has been saying to us. Issues you need to bring before before the Lord. Spend a bit of time in personal prayer and I'll pray in a minute. Father God, we thank you for the freedom of the gospel. We thank you that we don't need to try and keep all the the rules and traditions and prove to others that we are good people. We acknowledge that deep down there is sin in each one of us and, and yet you have forgiven us for that and we thank you for your willingness to do that. We thank you that even though we don't deserve it, Jesus willingly gave came to the, tro- the cross and gave his life for each one of us. We thank you for that free gift, Lord. We thank you for the joy, the peace it gives us. We know that we uh, are not perfect. There is still much sin in us. And we thank you that you're still doing a work of, of grace in us. And we thank you for that work that continues. And we long to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So, Lord, make us aware of those sinful thoughts and patterns of behavior. Where we need help, help us to seek help. Help us not to be so proud that we don't think we need help. And we pray that you would continue to change us as we keep focused on Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.